very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Bambergas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, you know what to do by now. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe you'll receive your login immediately. And don't forget to visit sanitasradio.com. Great and enlightening shows over there as well. And to get in touch with me, or if you'd like to be a guest on this show, again, just go to veritasradio.com and click on the contact button. You'll find your options right there. Tonight, we go inside the real X-Files. Not only have the FBI and CIA investigated UFOs, but both agencies have actively tried to conceal that fact from the public. These agencies collected information which, when combined with evidence collected by Air Force intelligence, proves that at least some UFOs are interplanetary craft. Furthermore, top Air Force officials knew this over 60 years ago and covered up this information from the American people. Get ready for the real story of why America's leading intelligence agencies have been genuinely concerned about UFOs and why the problem of UFOs is unlikely to go away anytime soon. All of it with tonight's special guest, Dr. Bruce Maccabee, right now on Veritas. Dr. Bruce McAbee has a PhD in physics and was employed for 36 years at the Naval Service Warfare Center, doing research on numerous projects, including generation of underwater sound with lasers, high-power beam control systems for use in the Strategic Defense Initiative, and defense against chemical and biological attacks. He became seriously interested in the UFO phenomenon in the late 1960s while working for his PhD at the American University. He is the author of many books, including the latest titled The FBI-CIA UFO Connection, The Hidden UFO Activities of USA Intelligence Agencies. And to learn more about Dr. Bruce McAbee and his work, and for a more complete biography, visit our website where we will find links to his. And directly from, I believe, Allen County, Ohio, I would like to welcome Dr. Bruce McAbee. Hello, Dr. McAbee, and welcome to Veritas. Thank you. I always learn searching for the truth. Absolutely. And you know what Veritas means. Truth. truth. By the way, did I say your location correctly, uh, Allen yes, County, I'm, Ohio? Yes, that's correct. Well, it's been 
eight years since we began this program, and I'm surprised that I haven't had one of the top researchers, most respected researchers in the field. So I'm honored to have you here. But first, Dr. Maccabee, since this is your first time on Veritas, why don't you tell us how your research into UFOs began and what motivated it? Growing up in the 50s and 60s, um, I was uh, aware of uh, things going on that were strange, but as a child I didn't do anything about it, except in high school I read a book called The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects by uh, Edward Ruppelt, who was the first director of Project Blue Book. And uh, I wish I had saved the, uh, the short review of the book that I had to write, you know, one of these situations where you have to read so many books per half year of school. And I had picked that as one of the books to read, and by the time I got to the end of it, uh, I could see that Ruppelt was on, was like sitting on the fence, and it would take a feather to blow him off into the interplanetary side. But he didn't actually come out and say anything, say UFOs, uh, some UFOs are interplanetary craft. Although we now know that he could well have said that, and he could have gotten away with it because the top generals knew it anyway. But I didn't know that when I was a high school kid in the 50s. I really didn't get interested again until um, the mid-60s when there was a flap of sightings in the United States. And that led to congressional hearings, which uh, subsequently led to the special uh, Air Force-funded investigation called uh, the Colorado uh, University Study on UFOs which uh, resulted in a large uh, report that was published in late 68, uh, which basically said, well, the director of the report, Edward Condon, said uh, there was, they hadn't learned anything, and he expected that further uh, efforts by the Air Force wouldn't lead to any worthwhile knowledge, so he may as well forget it, and basically told the Air Force there's no reason in continuing, and they um, closed Project Blue Book in early 69. But I had uh, gone to, I was aware of the newspaper stories of uh, sightings in uh, the Midwest. And uh, when I was at American University getting my Ph.D. in physics, <clears throat> so a couple of guys from an organization that then existed called NICAP, National Investigating Committee on Aerial Phenomena, came to American University, which is in Washington, D.C., not about a mile from the NICAP office, I guess, and uh, gave a lecture on UFOs. And one of the things they said was, I knew that their headquarters was downtown in Washington, D.C., and one of the things they said was, we're always looking for volunteer help to uh, uh, answer questions and file documents and stuff like that. And so that was, uh, uh, I guess, one of the turning points in my life, in the sense that um, out of all the people who might have heard this uh, lecture and done something about it, I guess I was the only one to actually go down to the... Uh, office and uh, do some work for them. <clears throat> it was sort of a disappointing experience in a sense because uh, NICAP was mentioned in a, in a lot of UFO books back in those days because uh, by the 1968 when I got interested um, NICAP had already been around for about 10 years, had something like 10,000 members in the United States and uh, was continually uh, harassing the Air Force saying that they're, they were covering up valuable information. And so I went to the office expecting, uh, NICAP, expecting to find a 
in a large office with lots of secretaries running around filing stuff and scientists doing research work and all sorts of things like that. The office was at a place, it was uh, in a row house, not far from what's known as DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C., on New Hampshire Avenue, 1536 New Hampshire Avenue. Somebody's, somebody's there right now as I speak. But that's all been uh, rebuilt, torn down and rebuilt in 1968. It was a bunch of row houses. I went to 1536, walked in the door. There wasn't any doorway on there. And then there were stairs. There was a doorway, but no door. And then stairs going upstairs to an upper apartment uh, with a single light bulb lighting the uh, stairway. And I opened the door at the top of the stairway and saw a small room with a bunch of boxes piled all over the place and papers and general uh, mess of stuff. And a broken down little old lady who was running the whole show. Uh, Isabel Davis. And uh, over the next some number of months, uh, by going down to the office every now and then, I uh, wrote I wrote up a uh, a answer sheet. A, you might say a, what nowadays called a frequent, frequently asked questions, a FAQ type document, which she typed with a special typewriter in tiny print, so she could fit it all on one page. And then have a, a single page answer to anybody's questions uh, that she could fold up and mail in an envelope. That was the main duty, was uh, answering questions that people mailed in and stuff. But that did give me access to the files. 10,000 UFO reports were <laughs> sitting in filing cabinets at the headquarters of NICAP. <clears throat> and it also connected me up with a Investigating group, the NICAP uh, operated through local subcommittees. The uh, subcommittee for Washington, D.C. was, of course, head, headquartered in Washington, and they met at the uh, NICAP office, and uh, I met some of the people, and we went on investigations, and uh, I was, I guess you could say, fortunate. The first investigations that I took on were not trivial. They uh, actually involved some uh, good reporting by credible people. So I've, I've read stories, uh, testi- essentially testimony by other people who've gotten interested in the subject. And their their first investigations have been of, uh, you might say, irrelevant or very poor sightings, and that's turned them off on the whole thing, and they poo-poo it to the two today, I guess. But in my situation, I came up with, against cases that uh, uh, have good detail of uh, strange things happening and uh, apparently credible people, not the town drunk or somebody who is clearly hoaxing or making stuff up, fabricating and all. So that's how I got into it very briefly. Uh, I didn't do anything uh, unique or new in the field, all I did was read up until 1973, when uh, the Conan Report was published in 60, late 68 and early 69, uh, and the, the, the news media read the introduction by, uh, or the overview by uh, Conan, and found his statement that there was basically nothing to it, and he didn't think it was worthwhile for the Air Force to continue, and then the Air Force closed Project Blue Book. The general sort of feeling in the press was that UFOs had gone away and would not come back. 
And so there was a, a dull lull, uh, and the, the sighting number of sightings had actually gone down to, there had been a peak in sighting level in 65 and 66, and the sighting rate had diminished after that. So by the time uh, the Con report came out, it appeared to the press that UFOs had gone away. I knew they hadn't. The people in ICAP knew they hadn't. There were still sightings, but they weren't getting the publicity that they had had before. And then all of a sudden came August 1973, and it's sort of like, we're back. <clears throat> there were sightings in the south, southeast, uh, and a wave that moved around, moved westward and northward into the uh, northwest, and hundreds of sightings from all over the place, including a couple of them that still are mentioned today. The uh, Hickson Parker abduction case at Pascagoula, Mississippi, um, which uh, made national news, and the uh, helicopter case, uh, helicopter driven by Captain Coyne, which was flying along, saw this object approaching, and apparently lifted the helicopter upwards when the helicopter was... The, the pilot the, the pilot had put the uh, helicopter into a dive to avoid what was approaching him, and even though the uh, <coughs> control arm indicated a dive... Uh, the, the thing was actually lifted a couple of hundred feet, or a couple of thousand feet, I guess. So that made national news as well. And there were a lot of sightings that didn't make national news, of course. But the thing is, that was sort of the, uh, the, the spur that got me moving, and I started trying to do some unique research in this field. Took on some cases that uh, sane people wouldn't have, like, for example, McMinnville, Oregon photo case um, and uh, an astronaut case in Gemini 11 and some others <clears throat> and this is what sort of got me started and uh, um, adding to the knowledge about UFO cases and UFO sightings and so on. Well, that that's a great story. And uh, just like you, Timothy Good, whom you probably know, also started his research into UFOs when he read uh, Ruppelt's book as well. When you were saying that things calmed down in the 60s and then all of a sudden we're back in the 70s, I was going to say, I grew up in the in one of the corners of the Bermuda Triangle in the Caribbean. I remember very clearly all the sightings because I saw one as a child, which is what propelled me into all of this. But were you one of the pioneers who squeezed information out of the government in matters of UFOs when the Freedom of Information Act became the law of the land? Well, yeah. <clears throat> now, this is the story of um, how I happened to uh, get the FBI file. And uh, as I point out in the book, you have read, if you read the ebook version. Sure. Uh, it was uh, while doing the memento uh, investigation that I uh, contacted the FBI. Now, from 1974 onwards, I was investigating the, uh, the photographic aspect of the McMinnville case. The, in the book, the two pictures are, are there for anybody to see, and they depict some object, which is clearly the real thing or a hoax. There's no halfway point. The Paul Trent pictures, right? Right. I mean, it shows, shows a circuit, what appears to be a circular object with a, a raised top section and a pole on the top sticking up. We don't know what the heck this signifies, 
But uh, my impression after years of investigation of it and having talked to Mr. Trent and uh, collected uh, testimony from a whole bunch of other people who knew her, uh, this was not a hoax. But at the, at the beginning of the investigation, I assumed that it probably was. The reason I picked that case was because it was the only photographic case endorsed by uh, the uh, analyst, the photo analyst who worked for the Condon study. His premier case was McMinnville, and he said about that case that all factors investigated seemed to point towards an extraordinary flying object passing within the view of the uh, of the witnesses, and they got two pictures of it. Well, that's pretty strong stuff here. The government, the Air Force, has funded this study, and although Condon, the, the director of the study, said there was nothing to the whole case, and if you read inside his uh, uh, analysis, what Condon has written, he basically poo-poos the Trent case, saying that it's uh, not worthy of investigation. So I, t- I decided, well, this was 74 or seven, late 73, and uh, nobody had picked up on the McMinnville case. You would think that if in a government-funded government science investigation, some scientist had made a statement which was, uh, um, well, of, of extreme importance, if correct, that other scientists would have jumped in and uh, said, well, let's find out whether he's correct or not. Instead, it seemed like the whole world ignored uh, this is William Hartman, William Hartman's uh, analysis of the Trent photos and the fact that he thought it was real. You'd think that other people would have jumped in to either to prove it was real or to prove it was fake, one way whatever. Well, I managed to get a hold of the original negatives and uh, began my investigation in depth, you might say. And uh, by 1975, the Freedom of Information and uh, Privacy Act, FOIPA, came into force. It had been passed a few years before, and it came into force and basically said that uh, you could write to any government organization and ask for information uh, that you wanted to ask for, and they could only withhold it if there was some documentable secret reason for... Uh, National reason security. For special security or something like that. Certainly, classified documents didn't have to be released, uh, uh, although they could be if, if they declassified. were declassified first. Anyway, uh, part of the Trent story was that um, Paul Trent said that the, uh, an FBI agent had come right to his, where he was working and interviewed him. And Mrs. Trent talked about two guys who showed up and were throwing objects up into the air and so on, taking pictures uh, at her house. So I thought, well, <clears throat> under the Freedom of Information Act, I could try. Uh, I didn't really think the FBI would give me any personal information on uh, uh, Paul Trent, but I wrote a letter to the FBI in September of 77, <clears throat> or 76, rather, asking, or maybe it was 77, whatever the year was, uh, asking for if... Uh, they could tell me if they had a record, had a file on Paul Trent. I figured uh, they might not be able to tell me what's in the file, but they might be able to tell me if there was a file on him. And I sort of, as a uh, afterthought, put in, oh, by the way, anything else you might have on UFOs, please let me know. <clears throat> I didn't expect the FBI to have anything because 
in Rufel's book, which I had read uh, a second time by this time, Rufel says, so far as he was new, no, no, the FBI was never interested in the subject, so I didn't expect to get anything. Well, I filed this request in September of 96, I think it was, 76, 1976, and uh, within 10, 10 days got a response back saying your your request is number 34,256 or some big number like that. <clears throat> and uh, I thought, well, maybe by the next century I'll get a response. <laughs> right. So six months later, approximately, I think it was in May of 77, to my great surprise, uh, I got a phone call from <clears throat> a uh, so equally surprised FBI agent who said, I didn't know he had all this stuff, but there's over a thousand pages of material. And uh, since back in those days, there were people who were charging, uh, government offices were charging 10 cents a page to copy stuff with a Xerox machine. He said he would be willing to pick out what seemed to him to be the most valuable documents and uh, send them to me. So he picked out 470 approximately and sent them to me. And I started writing, well, started making the connections between the documents and what was already known from Air Force history of Project Blue Book and so on at the time. Subsequently, more documents were released up to the totality of 1,600, and you can get them all on a the internet on the fbi.gov uh, site, or you can go to the Black Vault site, <clears throat> or perhaps some other sites where the uh, documents are available. They weren't in any, in the, uh, the computer version, aren't in any historical order. There's a, a jumble. I took my, I took the documents and arranged them all in historical order. And within a year, had written several articles published uh, in the MUFON Journal, uh, APRO, Aerial Phenomena Research Organization Journal, and, and the International UFO Reporter, all published documents and stories about the, uh, the FBI file. Do you think, Bruce, that those people who, who thought uh, these documents will never see the light of day as it relates to the public, public consumption, Never, they never expected this to happen. That these documents would make made it out, make it out to the public. I don't think they even raised the question. I don't think you know. Back in the late seventies, I mean, back in the late forties, coming out of World War II, when government secrecy was a nor normal thing, <clears throat> and you didn't ask questions, you didn't ask your you didn't ask your neighbor what he was doing, and if you did, he was. If you did ask him, and he was a good boy, he didn't. He'd say, "Sorry, I can't tell you what I'm doing." <laughs> so, secrecy and the idea of uh, secret documents getting out probably just didn't, never crossed their mind. We're talking to the FBI; they would say, and the FBI never tells anybody anything. A big black hole. Well, it was very fortunate for us in UFO research that this black hole existed. And uh, very fortunate that the Air Force had contacted the black hole <laughs> um, early on. It was the uh, 10th of July of 1947, uh, only a couple of days after Roswell incident and a couple of weeks after this, this sort of all began with the Kenneth Arnold sighting on June 24th of 1947. On July 10th of 1947, um, a guy in... Uh, uh, General Shulgin in uh, Air Force uh, Intelligence uh, contacted the uh, FBI liaison and said, 
said to him, we're, doing, we're utilizing all our agents, all our scientists to find out what's going on with these UFO sightings, which we're paying attention to. Obviously, they were paying attention to. And uh, they wanted the FBI to investigate witnesses to see if there's any possibility of communist subversion going on, creating hoax UFO cases, uh, perhaps to make the American people feel that the Air Force couldn't control the sky. And um, So anyway, the FBI thought about it for a while, and then uh, Hoover signed a document saying he would do it as long as he gets uh, access to disks disc that are recovered. Than collecting stuff. So that was the main reason why that was the main reason why Hoover wanted the interviews to take place. They really didn't care about the UFO sightings, quote unquote. They just wanted to see if there were some commies out there trying to destabilize the the the, the, the population here. Right, and uh, no, nobody nobody really believed that these UFO things were some, something weird. Uh, one of the first things that the FBI did was asked for confirmation that it wasn't a uh, U.S. project. And uh, General Shulgin said, uh, I'll let you know. And a little bit later, sent an official letter to the FBI saying that all the projects have been interrogated, you might say, and none, no Air Force project could give rise to sightings like the UFO sightings, the flying saucer sightings. So the FBI investigated witnesses for a couple of months and then uh, sort of a scandal came along where the FBI was told that they had been brought in to handle a, um, all the cases of ash can covers and toilet seats. In other words, the hoax cases. And Hoover decided that this was not a good thing to dissipate the uh, energy of the FBI on. And they stopped investigating. But what they did not stop was the link that had been established. And here's the key thing about this, the value of the FBI UFO connection with the Air Force standing in the middle. So the, uh, once, this block, once this link had been established between the Air Force intelligence and the FBI, it didn't, it didn't close, but it went one way all the time. The FBI never told the Air Force anything. But the Air Force told the FBI lots of stuff, and uh, including some things which blew the lid off the subject once, once we got the documents from the FBI. <clears throat> uh, my book is unique in the sense that I've used only un unquestionably qu uh, real documents, documents of unquestioned authenticity. They came out of the Blue Book file, they came out of other intelligence, Army, Air Force intelligence files, and so on. Um, and I've connected the dots, you might say, uh, one of the big fat dots was uh, the explanation or failure of explanation of UFO sightings. And you can see this happening right at the very beginning with the Kenneth Arnold case. Initially, they treated it seriously. Uh, but if you were to look at the official explanation of the Kenneth Arnold case, you'd see that it was called a mirage. And, and for those for those who, who may be wondering that may not be too familiar. The Kenneth Arnold case was the one that he was flying uh, around Mount Rainier, and he was the one who coined the term flying saucer, correct? So he didn't use the term flying saucer. What he said was, when he was interviewed, uh, well, first of all, he saw these nine objects flipping and flashing in the sunlight, uh, semi, mostly circular. They had a convex tail. He drew a picture that he sent to the uh, Air Force. Um, the traveled from his perspective. He was heading eastward, and they, these things. 
it was west of Mount Rainier, about 20 miles west of Mount Rainier, heading to the east, and he saw these things fly past Mount Rainier and continue on uh, down the, the, what he called the hogback chain of mountains that goes all the way down to uh, Mount Adams. And uh, he timed the flight between the two mountain peaks and later found out that it was 47 miles and it was covered in 102 seconds. He measured the time on his dashboard clock. Uh, it turned out to be 1,700 miles an hour. Now, Chuck Yeager, the guy with the right stuff, broke the sound barrier in September of 47 at 700 miles an hour approximately. So these things were already going 1,000 miles an hour faster than, than our fastest uh, aircraft, our fastest jets. And when um, uh, he landed, uh, uh, Arnold told some of his buddies at the airfield, and the word got spread around very quickly. Uh, it got to some reporters, and well, he was interviewed and asked what he saw and what they flew like, and he said they flew like if you took a saucer and skipped it on the water. And somehow the reporter converted that into uh, flying saucers. Mm, I see, I see. <laughs> So that uh, came about as a result of a, an attempt by the, the media to compress uh, a major thought into several words uh, that might be related to the major thought, but not quite. Anyway, that's how flying saucers was invented. And um, the, uh, the Air Force took an interest in this, uh, starting uh, almost immediately starting collected stuff. And... Uh, as I said, they were they they were uh, buffaloed. They couldn't figure out what was going on. They didn't think it was their stuff, but they there was there were checks made by uh, the me the mid level the mid level brass checked on all the projects that were going on to the extent that they could know about and didn't come up with anything. So the top level brass also made a, made the bald statement that there were no. Uh, project going on that could account for flying saucers. Now I have to ask so, you this. I have to ask you this. Now that the X Files TV show is coming back, as you probably know, I have to ask you: Did the uh, did they really investigate saucer sightings, and did they have an X Files division? Well, they didn't have an X Files division, but they did have an X File, and uh, that was one of the interesting things that. Uh, What's his name who started it? Chris Carter. Chris Carter, yeah. Got, got, got right. And I show this in the, in the book. Uh, if you look at the e-book, I presume, you can see the uh, pictures of uh, some of the documents. And right up front, I have documents that were labeled Security Matter-X, which would be the real X-Files. They had a file where basically they're saying, we don't know what's going on, but there's something. And... Uh, well, the FBI kept track of all sorts of stuff, so why not keep track of uh, unknowns as well? Anyway, um, so Chris Carter had it had it partially right. He had it partially right that there was a file called X. The, the, there was an X file. There were a number of documents that were put in called Security Matter Dash X. Now the the. How come, and we'll discuss first the, the FBI, then we'll discuss the CIA, but how come we never hear about the real organization interested in UFOs, the CIA? Well, the CIA, first of all, ignored this for the first few years, 47. The, the CIA basically, basically ignored the subject for the first few years. I mean, they had one guy who 
made some, wrote some papers on it, basically saying he wasn't impressed by what's going on. And uh, it wasn't until 1952 that the CIA began and had a formal interest. Uh, 1952 is a very important year uh, for the subject because uh, all hell broke loose over the United States at that time in the summer of 52. 52 could be called the year of the UFO. And, uh, several, thousand sightings, several thousand sightings in that one, uh, one summer. Uh, and the FBI uh, got, got involved so we were talking about the CIA and the fact that we always see the FBI, but we don't hear that much about the CIA. Did the CIA have a lot of interest in the early days? The CIA essentially ignored the subject, except for one person who kept tabs on it, you might say. Um, they essentially ignored, ignored the subject until the summer of 1952. The summer of 1952 had the largest flap ever recorded several thousand sightings over a period of a couple of months. And everybody, it was in the newspapers, nobody could know, nobody could miss that something was going on. Uh, and the, the CIA actually investigated the Air Force project. But this time, Project Blue Book had been going on for a few months, several months. Project, the Air Force started investigating without a specific project in the summer of 47, then in, in the early 1948, they started a project called SIGN, which uh, was intended to analyze, collect uh, UFO sighting and analyze the data. Uh, SIGN lasted about a year, and then it was replaced by a project called GRUDGE, which uh, basically tried to explain everything any way possible. Any explanation in a storm was uh, good for them. And then in the fall of 751, uh, <clears throat> top general Fon discovered that uh, Project Grudge hadn't been doing its job very well and replaced it with Project Blue Book. And uh, the director of Project Blue Book was this uh, Edward Ruppelt that I mentioned before. Anyway, uh, as Project Blue Book was getting started in early 452, and ramping up, they were doing things you would expect would be scientifically oriented, like developing a questionnaire for people to answer questions for people to answer. And uh, the dog barking bothers you or not? No, no, that's fine. Yeah, you know, they obviously had a different approach than the than the FBI. With so many sightings back in 1952, how come we didn't see? Because I've heard you say, when people ask you, will we ever see disclosure? And you say, when half of the population at least knows about this, we'll see disclosure. How come with the thousands of sightings back in 1952, we didn't see disclosure? And in terms, we saw Project Blue Book, which I think was probably also to mislead the population. Well, I may be uh, certainly there. Their effect probably was to mislead the uh, uh, population. Uh, the whole thing sort of came to a climax in um, late July of 1952 when General John A. Sanford, the head of uh, Air Force Intelligence, held a press conference and said that as far as he was concerned, although there was, he admitted that there were cases, uh, strange cases by credible people, <clears throat> then nevertheless, as far as he was concerned, it was all natural phenomena. 
and the press went away happy with that, in spite of all the sightings leading up to that, including sightings over the Washington, D.C. area that involved visual and radar. And one of the uh, important discoveries in the FBI file was that uh, on the same day that General Sanford told the general public and the media and the general public that there wasn't anything to it, the FBI sent a, sent a uh, FBI liaison man to the uh, Air Force Intelligence and asked um, what really is going on. And the FBI, the FBI was told that uh, the FBI was told that uh, some top-level Air Force officials were seriously considering interplanetary ships. The term interplanetary ships is in the FBI file. That's in uh, July 29th, I think, of 1952. Uh, it's in the book, of course, with a lot more detail. Even though, even though the words interplanetary, ET, or extraterrestrial were never used when describing sightings, correct? Uh, uh, to give an explanation. Uh, 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 that's right, and uh, although the people would talk about it in private, um, there was no public use of the term. And you can imagine if General Sanford had uh, said something about um, interplanetary ships, it would have blown the lid off. Good. You say, quote, From my studies of the Air Force, FBI, and CIA documents, I have concluded that there was enough information available in the X-Files to prove that UFOs are real and probably are interplanetary, to use their preferred parlance of the 1940s and 50s. I have also concluded that the top, top Air Force officials knew this but kept it secret, unquote. Why do you think, Bruce, why, what are the main reasons why this is all kept secret, then and now? Well, that they did that they did keep secrets, and why did they keep secrets are sort of like two different things. First of all, I have, uh, as I was saying earlier, sort of connected the dots um, to be able to arrive at my conclusion that the top Air Force people knew what was going on. Uh, and that's based on, I was talking about the Kenneth Arnold sighting to uh, lead to the idea that the Air Force was willing to accept anything as an explanation for a sighting. If you analyze the Kenneth Arnold case as I have, you know that a Mirage absolutely has no connection with what he saw. The mirages don't flip, flip and flash in the sunlight and blind you. Uh, they don't travel at 1,700 miles an hour uh, laterally. They don't even travel up. They just travel. They just sort of hover over the uh, mountaintops. So uh, the question then would be, why does the Air Force, and then there are a number of other UFO sightings that the Air Force had garbage explanations for, explanations where, where somebody who doesn't know enough about the physics of the subject, the environmental physics of the subject, might say, well, okay, maybe that's an accessible explanation, but somebody who does, does know physics and science would say that's not, not accessible at all. Um, there are other explanations offered for the Kenneth Island sighting by other people, and uh, they, they too are, don't work. But the thing that caught me, my attention, one of the things that caught my attention right off the bat when I started reading about the history of the subject and so on was faulty explanations 
And I've even written a paper called Prosaic Explanations, The Failure of UFO Skepticism, which talks about uh, numerous cases, old and relatively new, which uh, for which the official explanation makes no sense at all. <clears throat> One of the more recent cases is the uh, FAA explanation of what happened at Chicago O'Hare Air Force and Airport in what was it, 2004 sure. or six, where the, some object punched a hole in the cloud. <clears throat> so it was zipping upwards, right? And their first explanation was, well, this is a result of lights from the ground reflecting off the sky, the, the cloud cover, uh, which makes no sense. And when that didn't seem to satisfy the general public, they said, well, it was some uh, atmospheric phenomenon. <laughs> Big deal, some atmospheric phenomenon. Uh, what atmospheric phenomenon? Well, I had garbage explanations back in the old days, and I was sensitive to these garbage explanations, and I said to myself, why do they let them get away with that? And uh, the answer turns out to be that um, they couldn't they, they couldn't use the term interplanetary when uh, uh, in 19, late, late summer 1948. By this, uh, yeah, 1948. By this time, Project Sign had been going for a number of months, and uh, after one particular spectacular sighting by air, by pilots. Um, the people at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base who were doing the, uh, the project sign uh, analysis uh, wrote what has been famously called the estimate of the situation. This is, and uh, Ruppel mentions it in his book, and he says the estimate was uh, that uh, flying saucers were interplanetary. And they wrote up a document that basically says we've analyzed a whole bunch of uh, visual and radar sightings up to this point and concluded that the only thing that makes any sense is there are interplanetary craft flying around. They're not uh, not ours, not the Soviets, not hoaxes, mixed identifications and delusions. Something real is flying on, flying around and we think it's interplanetary. And according to Ruppel, when this got up to General Vandenberg, the chief of staff of the Air Force, he kicked it back saying, uh, for lack of proof, but here he had, this report was written by guys who were professionals in the, in the art of reverse engineering and uh, understanding aerodynamics and so on. Uh, he was telling his experts that they were wrong, apparently not telling them why they were wrong. And so they went, a group of men, according to Rupel, a group of men went to the Pentagon to talk to the uh, general directly. And he, would, he basically said, wrong answer and made interplanetary visitors an uh, illegal term to use to explain UFO sightings. You can explain it any way at all, even using the term unexplained, but you can't bring up the term interplanetary. Very interesting, Bruce, because you, you touch a very important point here. You know, when you have intelligent people, reverse engineering and so on, and they're, they're writing these cases, you know, somebody analyzing a crash site or a sighting like O'Hare or the Japan Airlines or even the Phoenix Lights, and as part of the secrecy, they must be highly competent and, and intelligent people. And are they playing dumb, giving stupid explanations like Venus or swamp gas? Part of, is this part of the plan to keep the public in the dark like mushrooms? Well, apparently that was the goal of Project Grudge. When Project Sign ended and Project Grudge took over, 
1949 Project Grudge, the result of Project Grudge were announced to the press, and they they said we've analyzed 240 or 50 or whatever it was sightings, and we've explained them all. Therefore, there's nothing to going on. And uh, according to Rupel, uh, some reporter that he talked to was reading through Project Grudge and coming up against the, the 52 Tuffee sightings uh, that were stuck in an appendix of the Project Grudge, and every one of them had an explanation. And the guy says, these explanations were were wrong or, at the, at the best, very unconvincing. Uh, like, you can't use the planet Venus as an explanation for everything that's up in the sky. So, uh, the point that I'm making is, they must have known they were proposing unscientific uh, explanations for a number of sightings. And why would they do that? Not out of uh, their love of science, per se, but their, their love of their job, maybe. Um, essentially, direction to, uh, to lie about sightings, in a sense. Now, there's another document that I came upon, which is a, which is in the, in the book, which is uh, written in April of 1952. This is before the big flap started. There was a guy by the name of Stefan Passoni, who was a uh, uh, academic. He was a, a professor at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and a, uh, a high-ranking consultant to the Air Force. And he was paying attention to UFOs, apparently. Now, uh, Rupel mentions him as somebody who would travel around the country and travel around from one country to another, collecting UFO stories, among other things. In April of 1952, he was writing a uh, request for a trip to Europe to study advanced aeronautical devices there. And he he says uh, this study might even help to... uh, Solve the problem, the vexing problem of the unidentified flying objects. Vexing problem. And farther on in the document, where he's making an argument against flying saucers, and he's making an argument for flying saucers, and he's making an argument uh, that he should be allowed to tra- travel with his uh, an Air Force guy who was part of this special study group, a special studies group that consisted of two people, I guess. Anyway. He says, the Air Force cannot assume that flying saucers are interplanetary. Therefore, they might be Soviet. And when I saw that sentence, it was the final, you might say, the final dot, and the final line in connecting the dots. The Air Force cannot assume flying saucers are interplanetary. What does that mean? Does that mean that the Air Force assumes? Now, the Air Force, this guy Passoni talks to, is the top general's. The guys at the very top in, in, in uh, operational in, intelligence, and uh, he's essentially saying that the top guys assume flying saucers are interplanetary. Well, what more do you need? And then in July of that same year, you have this huge flux of sightings that's going on, and sightings over the over the White House on two white uh, weekends. That's um, a big one. The the big ones, but they're really not so big compared to the number of the other sightings mm-hmm. that occurred throughout the United States during the previous two months. Yeah, but symbolically, they're flying over Washington. This caught the major interest of the press. Right. And uh, the, 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 there was a... These things happened on, one, on the weekend of the 19th of July, and um, 
in the middle of the following week, the Air Force announced that they had orders to shoot these things down if they didn't land. And then it happened again in the next, uh, the last weekend in July. And then two days after that, uh, General uh, Vandenberg uh, orders uh, General Samford to have a press conference. And essentially, I guess, to put a damper on the whole thing. And that's where uh, Samford says, uh, as far as he's concerned, it's all natural phenomena. It was a, a, many, a several hour long press conference. Uh, which there were none of the witnesses, and so the press didn't have a chance to actually talk to people who were directly involved. Uh, but uh, I had mentioned earlier that this FBI guy had, uh, uh, had gone to the Air Force Intelligence Office. The, the head of Sanford was the head of this office and had interviewed one of the people working in the office and was told, among other things, that there were several percent of the sightings that could not be explained and that uh, some top-level people were seriously considering interplanetary ships. Now, this is in the FBI file, so we can be pretty sure that it's reasonably accurate as to what was being said. That's not the only reference to interplanetary ships that comes out of the FBI file. A couple of months later, in October... In the end of October uh, of 1952, there was a, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of interest in a movie film taken by a Navy photographer in July of 1952, uh, a Newhouse film, Delbert Newhouse. He and his wife saw these circular objects flying through the sky. He got out of his car. He was driving through Utah. He gets out of his car, opens the trunk, pulls out his... Uh, professional 16-millimeter movie camera gets everything set and ready to go. By this time, the objects are farther away, and they show up on the film just as little dots. But he, uh, his testimony was that he saw, he and his wife both saw these things with sort of rotation, circular things with rotation going on. And that made it into the FBI file, and once again... The FBI file it says some top military officials are seriously considering interplanetary ships. So you put all these dots together, you connect them up, and it, and it says that the top people know what was going on. So you might say, well, why in the world did they have Project Sign, Project Grudge, Project Blue Book, if they knew what was going on? And the answer is, if they let's suppose they had Roswell hardware, just for this as an example, they would know for sure that this was interplanetary. And if they wanted to make sure that nobody else ever knew about Roswell, they would bottle everybody up and try to make it look like it was something else, uh, a weather balloon or a mogul balloon, or you pick something, whatever. They would, they would, they would, they, they would uh, the top, the top level people nevertheless would need information from the outside as to what these things were doing. Just to have the hardware proof isn't sufficient. You've got to know where they're doing things, what they're doing, when they're doing it, and so on. The only way you can do that is by having a uh, uh, information-seeking group or uh, people monitoring the situation all through the, throughout the United States and throughout the world. And so you set up a, an organization like Project Sign or Project Blue Book, which is with, with the job of collecting information. And... The, these projects never really analyzed the, unex, the unidentified cases. They were just leave some cases as well. We couldn't explain them. 
they always said we couldn't explain them, but if we had more information, we could we could probably could, and uh, left it at that. But uh, for the people on the inside, they would need all these reports to be filtered, and then the good stuff would be passed to the guys on the inside, and they would uh, thereby, thereby have their knowledge of what was going on in the outside world. So they have the best of both possible situations. They got hardware to prove it, and they got information from the outside to try to determine what's going on, when when it's happening, who's being affected, and so on. In other words, they needed an information collection organization that was not necessarily aware of why this information is important, and that was the Project Blue Book. It wasn't really to befuddle the public. It was to uh, collect information that was needed for the guys on the inside. It seems to me that they were mixing uh, known cases with unknown unknowns, putting them together and then just calling them all unknowns. That way people will would be misinformed, disinformed. But, you know, some people may well, criticize... They wouldn't, call them all, wait, 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 they wouldn't call them all unknowns. Remember, whenever they said that something was unknown, they always said, if we had more information, we could have explained these. That's right. Now, they proved during... Um, uh, a study that involved the Batalamaral Institute, so-called Special Report Number 14, demonstrated that if you took 3,000 sightings and divided them into various types of groups, uh, you could uh, show that... Um, I'm, losing, I'm losing my train of thought here. What if you got 3,000 cases? If you got 3,000 yeah. cases? Yeah, they analyzed 3,000 cases, and a number of the cases they couldn't explain... But a number of they they divided cases into various groups, and one of the groups was insufficient information. So in other words, they had cases that they couldn't decide whether it was unidentified or identified because they didn't have enough information. The point is, they had a special file for the unidentified for the insufficient information cases. That, that that file was separate from the unknown file. The collection of unknown cases therefore didn't didn't include cases where there was insufficient information. But that was only in the study that they did that. When the, when the study went public uh, in a very crummy way, and from then on afterwards, whenever they said these, like if you were to ask now, the 701 cases that uh, the project, that the Air Force claims and that were never explained, uh, they would say, but if we had had more information on those, we could have explained them too. Something that's impossible to prove or disprove. Do you think that President Truman was the one responsible to for putting the lid on the secrecy. Well, I don't know. I mean, it could it could be he tried to cover his rear by asking uh, uh, publicly asking what was going on, and apparently uh, Rupelt felt the brunt of that uh, when he uh, during this week between the uh, White House sightings, uh, but. Uh, I suspect this thing was really orchestrated from top-level Air Force people. And look, I know some people may criticize me by saying this, but this was the Cold War. This was the time during the Cold War taking place. We didn't want our enemies to know what we had or what we found. Was the secrecy justified back then, in your opinion? Well, yeah. As I have pointed out in my book, you have two two roads to travel. One road is the Roswell crash road. The other is there's no hard evidence, but we got a lot of visual and radar sightings and so on, other uh, circumstantial evidence. 
if you take the Roswell Road, uh, what was the question you asked? No, I'm just saying that at the time, was secrecy justified? We were in the middle of of, of the Cold War. If you, take, if you take the Roswell Road and they have hardware, then the thought would be, gee, this is really good stuff. Can we back engineer it and make use of it? Uh, and, we, and oh, by the way, we don't want our enemies to know about its existence because they might try to get one and they might work, they might be more faster than we are at understanding it. It was obvious that Flying saucers were excellent vehicles for carrying explosive weapons. Uh, at least that would be the assumption. You know, one of the first thing that the people checked on was, was it our aircraft, or could it be Soviet developments of the Soviets? And developments of the Soviets was always shot down whenever anybody proposed it, but they kept on proposing it year after year. Even the CIA, when it got interested in 1952, tackled the question of, are they are flying saucers our secret projects? And they said that they, they had checked with the uh, top level Air Force people and, and been told that there was no projects. But what really convinced this one guy who was uh, uh, looking into this problem, he said uh, the fact that these things are seen over uh, um, populated areas uh, would be. If, if, if they were really our craft or the Soviet craft would be something that would never be done because uh, these things might get shot down or might crash or somehow the information, uh, the mechanical details and all that stuff that constitute a flying saucer would then be available to whoever could get a hold of the pieces. Uh, so, and it wouldn't be transporting atomic bombs and flying saucers or whatever over populated areas and just too dangerous. So the bottom line was the CIA concluded on its own investigation that it wasn't a project of the United States. Um, and the Air Force had said, as far as we're concerned, now the Air Force lied to the CIA, so far as I can tell. It was almost as if the Air Force... Don't they lie to each other all the time, anyway? <laughs> it was almost as if the Air Force was trying to keep the CIA from getting interested the CIA had couldn't couldn't avoid the fact that there were these hundreds and thousands of sightings going on, and uh, nobody seemed to be handling the, the, the problem. So that's why the CIA jumped in and uh, spent some time in uh, August of 1952, and for the next four or five months studying the subject. The CIA was ready ready to uh, um, have a national security directive to establish a study of flying saucers. Uh, but uh, the, first, they were going to have a panel of experts look at the problem and decide if there really was a problem. This panel of experts became the so-called Robertson Panel in early 1953. The Robertson Panel was a whitewash. They took a bunch of scientists who had a penchant for disagreeing, for rejecting the idea of uh, flying saucers and interplanetary. Therefore, they must be something else. And, uh, they spent three days uh, studying a f- some cases and listening to uh, um, speakers from uh, several agencies, including the Air Force and Project Blue Book, and they concluded that everything could be explained. Um, and, and one interesting situation, for example, is the Delbert Newhouse case that I mentioned earlier, where he's dri- driving through Utah, he and his wife see these roundish objects with rotation going on. He tries to get his camera out, but they're too far away by the time he gets to the film. 
Now that film was analyzed in the photo, National Photographic Interpretation Center. Uh, uh, hundreds or thousands of hours of man, man hours of time put into that film, and they couldn't explain it. The experts in the film couldn't explain it. But um, somebody suggested it might be birds. And so if you look at the Robertson panel, I say, well, it's probably birds. But they never did hear the verbal testimony part by uh, Newhouse of what he saw before he got his camera going. They just based their conclusion on the fact that there were white dots in the film and that it could be birds. <laughs> you know, I've always wondered this, uh, Bruce. Let me just jump around a little bit uh, with Roswell and the sudden change of the story. I've always wondered about the sloppy explanations. First, the weather balloon. If it was a weather balloon, wouldn't we know of its composition and we wouldn't be, quote-unquote, sending it to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base for analysis? And then we get the crash test dummies that were not even available in 1947. Why do they take the public for granted in terms of our intellect? Well, I guess it was part of the... uh uh, the history of the subject, essentially, that any explanation is better than none. And, you know, when they called this thing the weather balloon, they're basically saying that Jesse Marcel, the the uh, captain or, or colonel in charge, colonel, what's his name, in charge of the base, all these people who had seen this stuff, they're all idiots. But it doesn't matter as long as we keep it secret. Uh, Jesse Marcel would have been told, well, we can't talk about this, you know, we're, we're going to say it's a balloon, we're going to say you, we're going to make it look like you are an idiot, but we, we can't really tell the public what the truth is. And Marcel would say, okay, you know, I'm for it, as long as we get it covered up, that's what, that's the main, main goal, if I have to be an idiot, fine. Now, Marcel was familiar with balloons and radar, radar balloons and stuff like that, uh, and anybody could have detected the, there was nothing anomalous picked up. I mean, I, I, I don't buy the weather balloon story, nor do I buy the mogul balloon story, because the mogul balloon was just more of the same. Uh, and, of course, the crash dummy, I call that the dummy drop theory. Even if you were buying the story of the balloon, why would be would they be taking it to Wright-Patterson for analysis? Well, you wouldn't. You wouldn't have to take it. That's in the FBI file, by the way. That comes out the the, the uh, um, trip wasn't the trip wasn't canceled. It was it was somebody said the the special the special uh, trip to Wright Patterson had been canceled, but it wasn't. Now there was one thing that was disappointing in the FBI file. Where the part that refers to Roswell uh, says uh, the, the 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 FBI document referring to Roswell says that uh, the FBI would be kept informed of whatever the results of the investigation of the Roswell material were. But they weren't, so far as I can tell. Did you believe Major Jesse Marcel's testimony? Yeah. Would you like to expound on that? Well, I believe that right, almost right from the beginning, because I was aware of how the information was, achieved, uh, was obtained, and I was aware of all the uh, surrounding stories and so on. So I just don't think he was... Uh, lying, and I don't think he was stupid. I don't think he was uneducated. I think he knew what a weather balloon would have looked like. I think he was a guy who was going to play along with whatever his his 
superiors wanted to do. And if they wanted to hold up a hold up a a piece of folded aluminum foil and claim that this was material from a water from what water you've been picking up, I mean that's essentially what you were what you were saying if you believed that he was picking up weather balloon material that he was uh, being told to his face he didn't know what the hell was going on. Well, I guess being a a military man, he was putting his country first, and he didn't care being humiliated. I'm sure he had no idea how it was going to blow up, and you know it was squashed for thirty years. Uh, there were hardly any mentions in, in the literature between 1947 and 1978. There's hardly any mention of the Roswell case. That's right. It wasn't it. Well. You know, Stan Friedman, he wrote the intro for your book. Wasn't it Stan Friedman who actually took that information out and made it more public now? Because we don't hear that before 78. Yeah, in 1978, he was giving a lecture. Uh, I, he, he's the person, obviously, who recount the history, but something like he was giving a UFO lecture, and after a UFO lecture, some people came up and talked to him and told him about a buzzy, a buddy of theirs who uh, was a ham radio operator who had said he had handled one of these flying saucer things in, uh, uh, in Hama, Mississippi, wherever it was. Um, and so uh, either Stan contacted the guy or, or he was working with Bill Moore at the time. And he had Bill contact uh, Marcel. I'm not sure who made the first actual contact. But it was uh, the story came out as a result of this lecture that... Uh, Stan gave at some place, I forget where, uh, and the, these people who came up afterwards and said, oh, you know a guy who said he's handled one of those things. That led to Jesse Marcel, and then from then on, there was a whole bunch of, a confluence of uh, different lines of investigation. Uh, about, uh, by a year or so afterwards, they had a bunch of witnesses, and the book came out, Roswell Incident, in, uh, in August, I think, of 1980. That's right, and we have to take a one and only break, uh, Bruce, but I have to ask you this question, I'll get your answer on the other side. We're discussing secrecy, obviously, folks, with the CIA, the FBI, but this whole notion of keep this quiet or this will shake civilization to its core, where did that come from? Did the 1938 War of the Worlds event had anything to do with that? Was it the Cold War? We didn't want our enemies to, to take our technology, and that's why we just plain fools with the public. We'll get your answer on the other side. But how can people buy this, the FBI-CIA UFO connection, Bruce? Uh, well, you could order an uh, autographed copy directly through me. You can contact me through the website, brumac.8k.com, or you could go directly to uh, Amazon. And order a paperback or an ebook, which is what I have. Did you have any? Did you have any trouble reading the documents that were in the ebook? No, not at all. It was perfect, actually. One one reviewer, if you go and look at the reviews, you'll find one reviewer about two weeks ago gave it one star. He said the book book is loaded with documents, but you can't read them because they're all out of focus. <laughs> Now he had sold hundreds of those books, and nobody had complained until that guy. So, I just want Maybe they're not as clear as having the document in front of you, but these are very old documents, and, you know, maybe... Uh, anyways, I was able to, to read a lot of the documents. So, folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with one of the pioneers. Pioneers, 
somebody who went to the Freedom of Information Act to get a lot of this information to all of us, he started the ball rolling. I had direct interactions with the CIA in the 1980s and 90s. That's right. And you're going to tell us how working for the Navy, many people may be thinking, well, Mel, is he, is he a spook? Is he working for the bad guys? I'll get your answer on the other side. Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Dr. Bruce Maccabee. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, detoxified iodine, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy.